listening to Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. Out of the Box is sponsored by HugMeTease.com. Spread love, give a hug, HugMeTease.com. Guys, we are now on SoundCloud. I'm excited about all the new SoundCloud listeners, but for those of you who are on iTunes, if you have a SoundCloud account, we would greatly appreciate you heading over to SoundCloud and clicking on the follow button and also sharing through SoundCloud. As always, we are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, and we absolutely love and appreciate positive comments on iTunes. Go on iTunes.com and log into your account and look for Out of the Box Podcasts. You can leave a positive review or click on subscribe, and that helps us get a lot more new listeners through the subscription because it pushes our numbers up and helps other people find the podcast. I am really excited today. I am here with professor of psychology at Knox College, and he has a book out called The High Price of Materialism. Professor Tim Kasser, how are you, Tim? I'm doing great, and yourself? Great. I'm really excited to have you here because you're talking about a really important topic and writing about an important topic that's really affecting our greater world in general, and that's um, our crazy obsession with materialism. Absolutely. That, that's uh, pretty much describes 21st century America, huh? It is. And it's funny because it seems like this model of industrialization and production isn't really vibing with the value system that we have as Americans and not just that, but people in general. Well, I think it's kind of, uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I, I think that uh, capitalism and consumer capitalism and the kind of corporate capitalism we have that so dominates America today you know, it pushes on us a really materialistic value orientation, um, and it's based on that. It's based all around trying to encourage people to focus their lives around making a lot of money and having a lot of possessions and obtaining a lot of wealth and status. Um, and, you know, that might work pretty well for uh, helping economic growth and making some tax revenue for the government and big profits for businesses. But what the research we've been doing shows is that it really comes at a cost for people's well-being as well as costs for society and the planet. Not just that, but it doesn't actually make people happy. And it seems like to have a very high consumer culture, you have to feed off of people's insecurities, which is not really healthy. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I think it's one of the main things that advertisers have known for a long time. Uh, is that you know one of the quickest ways to get people to buy something is to tell them that you know they're not pretty enough, they're not rich enough, they're not of enough high status, they're not competent enough, or they're not safe either, physically safe, and that um, the product that they're suggesting uh, you ought to buy is one that will somehow compensate for those insecurities. And, you know, advertisers have done that for a long time. And I think politicians play into it a lot, too. You know, if we don't get economic growth up, this bad thing's going to happen or that bad thing's going to happen. And we're going to collapse. Everyone's going to lose their jobs. The world, you know, the world's going to fall apart, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you look back at uh, after the September 11th attack, um, one of the things that President George Bush said Americans should do would be to get back to shopping, you know, and be, get back to conducting business because that was what was going to help the economy and therefore the nation, you know. And so even, you know, using that, that terrible insecurity that was brought on by those attacks to encourage people to move in an economic materialistic way. Now, the studies that you have done um, focus on a lot of intrinsic happiness, and those are things that 
um, for the listeners who don't understand, are things like building self-confidence, helping others. They're things that are totally free and don't cost any money, but actually create more long-lasting happiness. Maybe you can um, clarify or, or elaborate a little bit more. You bet. Well, what we really do is we uh, distinguish between two different kinds of values, two different value orientations or goal orientations. So on the one hand, we have those materialistic values or what in our science writing we oftentimes call the extrinsic values. And those are values that are focused on getting rewards or having status or having people praise us. And so those are things like money and image and popularity, etc., um, and as we've already sort of briefly noted, the research shows that the more that you focus on those values, the less happy you tend to be, more depressed you tend to be, more anxious you tend to be, etc. Now we contrast, contrast those extrinsic values with what we call the intrinsic values. And we call these the intrinsic values because from our theoretical perspective, they're intrinsically satisfying to pursue because they do a good job of meeting our psychological needs those needs that really are necessary for us to be well and to thrive. Um, the three main intrinsic values that we focused on are what are called self-acceptance or personal growth. So that's like pursuing your own interests, uh, doing the things that really help you to grow as a person. Um, then the second one is affiliation. This is about having close interpersonal relationships with your family and friends. And then the third one is community feeling. Um, this is the desire to help the broader world be a better place. To, so not just to help your family, but to help polar bears or people in some other country or whatever. So kind of like having a purpose-driven life, something bigger than yourself. Yes, that's a, that's a big part of it is having, you know, kind of trans. We actually, in our research, call community feeling one of the transcendent values. It's an intrinsic transcendent value because it is both inherently satisfying to pursue. That's the intrinsic part. And it's transcendent because it's about something bigger than you, okay? And uh, what we find is that the more that people pursue these intrinsic values relative to those extrinsic values, then they tend to be happier, they tend to um, be less depressed, less anxious, less likely to uh, abuse substances, more satisfied with their lives, etc. Now, it sounds like the extrinsic values are actually just a completely morphed and messed up way of trying to fulfill the intrinsic values because image and status and money and all those other things, they're just kind of ways to get love in a way or get fulfilled, but they're just kind of misguided. Well, that's another reason that we call them extrinsic, actually. So that's a great question because uh, they're extrinsic in the sense that they're not ends in themselves. They're means to some other ends, okay? Mm. You're doing them for this other extrinsic reason, yeah. And, you know, again, if you take a look at the advertisements, you know, if you buy the diamond ring, then she's going to love you. Or if you use this kind of shampoo, then, you know, you'll be beautiful, Um and people will love you. You know, it's. I think a lot of it is about love and attraction, but some of it is about also kind of feeling competent, sort of showing that you know you, you have it all together, right? Yeah, that you have it all together. You know, that I, if I have this car, it shows that I've I've made it and that I really am a successful person. Um, and again, this is one of the things that I think advertisers do really well is they manipulate those intrinsic values and try to. Um, convince you that the way to satisfy those intrinsic values or successfully pursue those intrinsic values is through consumption. 
right? And, you know, the example that I use all the time has to do with meditation, you know. So nowadays, if you want to start meditating, you know, you need to buy the meditation book and you need to buy the <laughs> incense and you need to buy the tape and you need to buy the mat, right? Something but, that's uh, free has been commercialized. <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, all the Buddha did was to sit down underneath a tree, right? And, and, and so, you know, and on and on and on, you know, I mean, the best things about, about love, you know, are free. And, you know, I always tell people, boy, if you have to buy a diamond ring to, you know, get her to marry you, you're probably in trouble. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you know, that's not what the basis of those intrinsic values is really about. Actually, but I think, Tim, there's a study that shows the, the, it's really funny. There's a study that shows the correlation between failed marriages and the size of the diamond ring, believe it or not. Really, really, and, and it's a positive correlation. It's so the neg- more, th- so the more, the bigger the diamond ring, the lower the chances the marriage will last. <laughs> I'd love to see that. I'm gonna have I to look find around it for, for that. you, but I'll send it to you. But I please saw do. It. I was laughing so hard. It's the smaller the diamond ring, the the um, higher the chances the marriage will last longer. <laughs> well, well, my marriage should be in good shape because I gave my my uh, wife a pine cone. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, you know, I mean, I think it's back to that insecurity point that we were making before, you know, that people kind of feel insecure about whether or not they're going to be loved. They feel kind of insecure about whether or not they've been competent. And of course, the advertising messages and lots of other messages sort of play on that. You know, we see all these images of beautiful, successful people. And if we compare ourselves to them, which people do when they see them on TV and elsewhere, then, you know, you end up feeling, eh, not so good. Or if you're looking at other people's Facebook pages, right, you know, then that, that insecurity starts to kick in. And uh, what what consumerism does is to provide a fairly quick path to at least providing a temporary salve on those insecurities. Of course, it doesn't last very long, and that's why you need to go buy something else. And not just that, but it's all a facade because – there are, you know, the way that our um, cycle, our production cycle is set up, you know, you can go to a factory in the third world and the high-end products are being made in the same factory as the low-end. Sure. So you're really paying for that marketing, that image. And that's just absolutely ridiculous because, you know, you're maybe you're wearing a shirt from Target and it's the same, you know, factory that's making Ralph Lauren polo or whatever. I'm just making up. A, a theoretical example, but it's right. shown that they're outsourced to the same factories. So, you know, you're just creating corporate profits. Now, the thing that bugs me is, you know, you're doing some really great work and I've heard a lot of, you know, watched a lot of documentaries and read books about this topic. There seems to be an attack on this mentality as you're anti-capitalist, you're socialist, you're anti, you know, big business. And that's not necessarily true. There are businesses who have conscious capitalism and have reworked their consumer model to actually be sustainable and help the environment and still make profits. Why do you think this idea of, you know, not consuming like crazy is attacked as this crazy socialist anti-capitalist idea? Well, I've certainly been called all all of those things in my (laughs) career and, and worse probably. Um, well, I, I do think that the the message to consume less is a very threatening one to to the standard view of capitalism, mm-hmm. and, and there's a variety of reasons for that. One of them is that you know 
the, the people who really promote capitalism, kind of the really neoliberal folks, believe that, you know, well, what should everybody be doing? They should be pursuing their self-interest. And mm-hmm. what is self-interest defined as? It's defined as uh, profit, money, and consumption. And so from, from that perspective, if you're saying we'll consume less, you're actually arguing that people should not be pursuing their own self-interests, right? Um, which, you know, well, from the capital... that's a bit extreme. There's a middle ground. Well, that's my view. And there are also other interests one might want to pursue besides just money and wealth and possessions. You're saying this exactly. is the argument against what you're promoting. Yeah, that's okay, what I'm trying it. to say is that, that what capitalists say is that, you know, you're, you're trying to convince people to do things that aren't in their self-interest because they believe self-interest is about amassing wealth and consumption and all of the rest. They kind of discount uh, the other values. That's absolutely right. You know, and I think that's one of the main points that I've been trying to make in a lot of my writing, especially over the last 10 years or so, where, you know, what happens is, and we know this from the empirical research, that what happens is, is that by thinking about money, you actually end up suppressing the intrinsic values. So it's, I use the metaphor of a seesaw a lot. So by, when, when you activate the ideas of money in people's minds, what ends up happening is that kind of crowds out those intrinsic values. It makes us care less about the things that we do just because it's interesting. It makes us care less about other people. It makes us care less about society and the broader environment. And so I think, you know, what's, what's happened in capitalism is that it's, you know, money has become such a dominant part of the ideology that other values that are part of what it means to be human get crowded out. Don't get me wrong. I've never been, tr- I've never tried to say that there's something unnatural about pursuing money and possessions. I think it's a very basic part of being a human. I think the problem is, is that under consumer capitalism, that particular value is raised to be the highest good. And by doing that, you end up crowding out these intrinsic values and not paying as much attention to these other things that can promote happiness as well as promote, you know, a more civil society and a more sustainable earth. It is. And I never understood some of the values because they literally don't make sense. You know, a a lot of Wall Street is all about beating earnings, beating earnings next quarter, more, 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 more. Well, there's only a certain amount of people on earth and there's only a certain amount of, you know, say I, uh, you know, I'm talking about McDonald's stock. There's only a certain amount of cheeseburgers you can eat. You can't eat any more cheeseburgers. So the idea of constant growth, constant growth, constant growth, it doesn't even make logical sense. It certainly doesn't make logical sense on a finite planet. No, it doesn't. And not only that, but it's like, you know, if you're if you're let's say you made a hundred million dollars this quarter, I'm just using a random example. Why do you need to make 200 million next quarter if you're still in the green every quarter? It just doesn't I don't understand it. It's like it doesn't seem very logical. Well, but it, it, it doesn't from an outside perspective, no. But from the internal perspective of consumer corporate capitalism, it makes perfect sense because the purpose of the corporation is to maximize profit for shareholders. And the shareholder always wants the corporation to be making more and more money so that the shareholder can be paid dividends or so that the shareholder can sell his or her stock at a profit. 
And of course, the government wants all of that to be the case too, because the government depends upon tax revenue under a capitalist system from economic growth, because economic because then they can tax those um, corporate profits, albeit at a fairly low rate. Mm-hmm. They can tax um, the earnings off of capital gains. They can tax the wages that uh, workers make from working from those uh, for those corporations, and then they can tax the um, the income or the the uh, sales that they get when consumers buy stuff. So you know, and then they can use all of that money to build roll, roads or fund schools or invade Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, because <laughs> then then they have the the revenue uh, from from those corporate profits in order to do the things that the government wants done. And of course, who is it that's funding most of the people in the government's reelection? big corporations and rich people so you know it's it's this it there's an internal logic to the cycle and as somebody who's spent you know the last 20 years um critiquing capitalism i have to give it its due in the sense that it is a brilliant system it really is an, an, a brilliant system for maximizing um, economic growth and for dangling candy in front of people to keep them motivated to do things that ultimately are not in their best self-interest, um, speaking in a broad scheme. But if you just define self-interest solely in the way that capitalism does, i.e. money and possessions, it actually works pretty well for a good chunk of people. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but to me, it still doesn't make logical sense, especially with the idea that you know increased consumption in, is in a line, in my mind, actually with poor Poor, poor products because you know let's say I get an iPhone well if my iPhone is good it should last me 10 years I shouldn't have to get a new iPhone in two years mm-hmm. unless it's a crappy product so it's in a way they're kind of promoting you know um, planned obsolescence where these products you want them to fail so people will buy more of them which that well, doesn't make any sense well again it, it, I don't want to be an apologist for capitalism because I'm certainly not I agree from <laughs> I agree from your perspective it doesn't make any sense but why doesn't it make any sense because you're applying a value system that is not about you always having the newest right so if you're if you wait 10 phone 10 years to let's say your iPhone does last 10 years okay you now are 10 years behind the game in terms of what an iPhone can do, all right? So you also apparently don't care about the status if you hold on to your iPhone. You've, d- you've said that the value doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is to have something that I'm not continually throwing away, maybe because you care about the environment, let's say, okay? But, and and that, that's my whole point here is that, that when you look at capitalism through the lens of the intrinsic values, then you're right. It doesn't make any sense. When you look at capitalism through the lens of its extrinsic values, it makes perfect sense. And what we need, and this is what I've been arguing now for a while, what we need is to develop uh, business models and develop an economic system and develop a political system which instead of looking at, you know, all good things come from economic growth and come from profit, that says, you know, there's a place for that. 
But really what we need is an economic system that balances all these different values. We need a political system that takes other values into consideration. We need lifestyles um, that take all these other values into consideration. And how are we going to build those? And I think this is really, you know, to use a capitalist metaphor, the $64 question, you know, a $64,000 question here. You know, what what is it that we can do in order to... Um, infuse these intrinsic values into our lifestyles, into our political economic systems, into our business models. Well, thankfully, I think that shift is happening now very slowly, but surely, you know, I know a lot of people who are just rejecting this consumer lifestyle to the point where, you know, there's so many different movements. There's a tiny house movement. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Sure. Where people are trying to minimize and have a more free time and, and not focus so much on the constant consumerism. And like you said, you know, the studies have shown it just doesn't bring you happiness. Yet right. we're on we're, these rat, you know, these rat race hamster wheels. Whereas, you know, you, you mentioned about how people have decided, you know, not to focus so much on consumerism and pursue other things. You know, in, in the academic literature, there's two terms for that. One is called downshifting. Another is called voluntary simplicity. It's making a choice voluntarily to live a materially more simple lifestyle than you might otherwise. And about 10 years ago, Kirk Brown and I did a study where we compared 200 people who were self-identified voluntary simplifiers with 200 matched mainstream Americans. They were matched on age and gender and zip code. And what we found was that the voluntary simplifiers um, were happier than the mainstream Americans, significantly happier, um, even though they had made less income. Okay, they only had about two-thirds of the income of the mainstream Americans, but they were significantly happier. And our analyses showed that those people who had downshifted, who had made this choice, the reason that they were happier seemed to be that they rejected those extrinsic values and they had organized their lives around the intrinsic values instead. So it's really good uh, evidence suggesting just what you're talking about and that this move um, towards a, a more simple life is is one that uh, really has some potential benefits. And I also want to mention that in addition to being happier, we found that the voluntary simplifiers also had lower ecological footprints. So they were living a happier life in a way that cost the earth less. So you know, there's kind of a double benefit. I think that the balance that you talk about is really important too because um – you know, like I said earlier, there's a lot of attack on what you're saying that, you know, you're kind of promoting. First of all, I didn't hear you say anything about social socialism, but I hear that a lot that if you attack capitalists, you're just a communist or a socialist, which is absolutely I don't think these people know what the definition of socialism is because they're just throwing out random terms. Sure. But I hear that a lot. Oh, you're, you're attacking capitalists. You're a socialist. I'm not advocating for socialism. What it seems like you're advocating is for a change in the current system. And th I don't find anything wrong with that. You know, that uh, the healthcare system gets attacked a, lo a lot when people say, well, we need a change in the healthcare system. Well, you're, you know, you're just uh, socialism. No, we, we just don't want all these crazy healthcare costs and people being pumped with pharmaceuticals. So I, I feel like there's a revolution going on in all areas of the system because the system that we've been living with, you know, it doesn't seem to be working in all areas, not just capitalism, but also healthcare and, and education and other areas. There seems to be this undercurrent of, of change going on, and I'm really excited about it. Um, 
like I said, the tiny house movement is is one. There's a lot of millennials who are highly compensated because of their technical knowledge who are living simply and then saving that money to try to retire early or do other pursuits as well. So there mm-hmm. seems to be a lot of shift in just that idea that we need to constantly consume and just buy these big McMansions and, and drive Beamers and other things like that. Although it still exists, it, I've noticed that there's a change. And I think that global warming has actually um, influenced it because like you said, this lifestyle that is being promoted is not very sustainable. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny to me because as I look at the trends, on the one hand, I do have the optimism that you mentioned, you know, that there are a good number of people who, uh, especially millennials and younger people who do seem to be interested in alternative forms of ownership, who are interested in, you know, kind of rebelling against consumer society. On the other hand, the unfortunate fact is, is that most of the evidence I'm aware of suggests that young people today endorse materialistic values at higher levels than people did uh, 40 years ago and even uh, 30, 25 years ago. And so, you know, it may be that there's kind of a, a bifurcation happening here, that there's, that there's a group and perhaps a larger group than historically was the case, but nonetheless, some group of people who really are rejecting the kind of this consumer mentality. But on the other hand, most of the trends do suggest that uh, materialism has been on the rise among young people. And and if you th- if you think about it, you know, and, and the data suggests that that partly this is a function going back to insecurities. Um, there's some evidence that I've, I've published with Gene Twenge that shows that times of more economic insecurity and other kinds of insecurity partly explain why um, youth are more materialistic today. But there's also some evidence that shows that as advertising has become a bigger and bigger part of uh, our economy, of course, all those messages encourage materialism. And so, you know, that also explains these rises in materialism. So I, I wish I could be, uh, don't get me wrong, I definitely think that there are wonderful trends happening. I think that there is a lot of good stuff that is occurring out there that uh, people are, are grabbing a hold of. I'm not as confident that it's as high of a percentage um, as as some people might think. Well, Tim, I would also attribute that to um, the very, you know, you talk about capitalism being very, very smart and very tricky. What's going on as well is that these consumeristic and capitalistic ideas of the American ideal are now being projected into the developing countries and third world, which before did not have the financial means to be spending like, you know, crazy the way we spend over here. And as China develops and other countries develop and get a middle class, you know, when you're growing up in abject poverty and all of a sudden you get pushed into the middle class because of an economy developing and, you know, you don't have the education or emotional intelligence and then you're projected all these ideas, these corporations are actually taking advantage of and vulturizing members of developing countries because they don't know what's hitting them. You know, they don't have the psychological understanding to know they're being brainwashed. Well, um, I don't disagree with that, but I'm not so convinced that Americans have that psychological understanding either, <laughs> um, you know, that most Americans do. And and certainly, you know, when there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, children under age 8 or 12 
can't really get it. You know, they don't really get this idea that advertising is trying to persuade them of things. Um, and that's part of what makes advertising so powerful in that particular age group. And of course, that's when you're forming your values. That's when you're forming your identity. Um, that's when a lot of these things start to become super important. That's why but, they put but, the candy uh, in the, the pay aisle, right? Right where uh, the kids can see it. Well, and that's why they uh, put uh, product placement in kinds in all kinds of video games and web sites, and why you know there's advertising in schools and on and on and on. Um, you know, it's it's an effort to get to young consumers um, to help kind of cement that consumer mentality into their uh, into their developing person. But you know, on economically developing nations, I completely agree with you. You know, this is exactly what globalization um, is designed to do because it maximizes profit, usually for the uh, wealthy countries, though, right? You know, so most of the money that is made in those economically developed countries goes back out to uh, the companies or I'm sorry the, the money that's made in the economically developing countries the money that uh, the profit that's made there goes out back to the rich shareholders of uh, corporations it's a different form of colonialism in a lot of ways and the marketers are right there you know the marketers are right there trying to convince people to spend these better wages on consumer goods because just like they've told us that that's going to be the path to happiness. That's what they tell people in economically developing nations as well. And the sad thing is, you know, there's been so many statistics that show that, you know, we cannot sustain our current level of consumerism in America. Yet if these other, as far as the earth is concerned, you know, destroying the earth and the finite resources because we're not developing in a, um, 100% sustainable way. And then to have other countries take on our level of consumerism, I don't know if that's a very good idea. (laughs) No, it's absolutely not a good idea. You know, I've, I've read somewhere that, you know, some, if, if everybody can on earth today, forget any more population growth, but if we all just consumed like Americans do, we'd need something like five or six more earths. You know, and obviously we don't have that. There don't appear to be any habitable planets uh, in our solar system. And if there are any other ones out there, it's going to take us who knows how long to be able to ever get there because they're so far away. So this is the one Earth that we have. And, uh, you know, that we, we have to make a choice here about consumerism. You know, unfortunately, and I also do a lot of work in the environmental realm, you know, consulting with environmental groups. I think the problem a lot of environmental groups have decided that, you know, green consumerism is the answer. You know, if everybody bought a hybrid car and, um, you know, changed the LED light bulbs, et cetera, et cetera, that that's going to solve the problem. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm completely in favor of green consumerism. I think it's something that's going to be uh, useful and that is part of the solution. But it's everything I've read suggests that it is not going to get us anywhere near sustainability um, for multiple reasons, you know, in part because people will save, take the money that they saved and spend it on an airline flight someplace. And <laughs> th- th- that's called the rebound effect. No, the, re- the research shows that. No, that no, no, it, I believe you. It's just funny because you're taking away from one thing and you're just doing it somewhere else, right? <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, there, there are environmentalists who say that, you know, one of the best things you could do would be to like spend your money on like some $10,000 statue and just put it in your backyard, you know, and then, then, you know, it doesn't really have an ecological impact. And then you don't have the money left in order to go to Bali for the weekend or whatever. So, you know, 
we we obviously we need to consume less. You know, I, I, I think that's that's obviously part of the answer. And I think it's a big part of the answer is to change and reduce our consumption patterns. Um, and there is a lot of exciting stuff happening in that respect, you know, with regard to, you know, car sharing is another great example. Um, you know, in the sharing economy, you know, if, if we shared cars and we shared lawnmowers and we shared books and we shared all kinds of other things, um, that would have, you know, we can't share, I don't want to start sharing my toothbrush, but there are, <laughs> you know, there are plenty of kinds of things that um, we could share and reduce our consumption on. Um, and and that is a new and kind of emerging part of, of, of the economy that I think is exciting and is going to be interesting to watch as it goes forth. Um, and, and we need more and more of those kinds of models and more and more, you know, libraries that uh, where you can borrow things other than just books. Well, um, you're, so what you're saying is that green consumerism is a help and it helps yes. the situation, but we need to scale back in general as a whole. And, and, and that's that, not, and if everyone went green, it still wouldn't solve the problem because we're in a deep hole. <laughs> that's exactly okay. right. And that's, that's what I understand from all of the environmentalists who I speak with is green consumerism is good, but it's not going to take us far enough. But the reason that green consumerism gets so touted is because it's consistent with the capitalist economy. Okay. You know, it still desires high levels of consumption. Companies can still make a lot, a big profit. You know, if you go and you buy a hybrid car but profit is going to go down if there's only if if 10 people share one car there's going to be a decrease in profit okay it's much better for capitalism for 10 people to go buy 10 hybrid cars than it is for those 10 people to pitch in and buy one hybrid car and share with each other and that's the threat to consumer capitalism because it's a threat to economic growth and it's a, a threat to profit and it's a, a threat to workers jobs Okay, and and that's where the logic of of trying to only have green consumerism to solve our problems breaks down. Now, Tim, I'm going to go really down a rabbit hole with you. Um, just bear with me. <laughs> okay. Um, now, by the government supporting large corporations, um, there it seems like they're actually promoting capitalism. Whereas, if they actually let unfettered capitalism um, go off. It might fail itself. Let me explain. So right now, the government has these huge subsidies um, for oil consumption, right? Sure. Which is promoting oil consumption. But in Europe, for example, you know, they just let it go ride in the market. And therefore, gasoline is extremely expensive in Europe. And so people actually consume less and use more public transportation. The same thing with GMO corn and other thing. You know, the, the U.S. subsidizes these large corporate farming. And so... In, and then that pushes people to buy more of these products, where if they just let the free market, actually capitalism, ride out, the cost of food would go up and people would not be buying all these crazy processed food products. Does that make any sense? Well, it makes perfect sense. You know, I think another example is that, uh, you know, the amount of subsidies that are put into uh, road construction and, uh, you know, interstate construction and the airports, you know, just it's so much higher than the pittance that is given to our public transportation Amtrak train system. Okay. What I'm you know, saying is it's basically is socialism. It's just corporate socialism. Well, well, yeah. I mean, you know what, what some people say is that, um, 
you know, what corporations do under this government is they internalize the benefits, but they externalize the costs, right? You know, so who ends up picking up all of those costs? Well, the taxpayer does, right? That's exactly right. You know, or the same is true, you know, with a corporation like Walmart, you know, so Walmart sets it up so that they don't hire most of their employees so that they have to pay them benefits. So when what happens when uh, they get sick? Well, then they have to, you know, rely on public aid. Well, public aid is you and me and, you know, all the other people in America who are paying taxes. Okay. And so, but that's a good strategy for Walmart because then that lowers their bottom line because they're not having to pay for uh, the health insurance for their employees, et cetera. You know, we could go on and on and on. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the problem is, and it part of it goes back to campaign finance, you know, who is it that is funding these massive elections, you know, that cost hundreds of millions of dollars? Well, by and large, there's a great uh, website called Open Secrets, where if you go there, you can see all of the different corporations which are funding um, the senators and the congresspeople and uh, the presidential elections. And it's, you know, we're, we're talking, especially since the Citizens United ca uh, case in 2010, what we have here is a. Pardon me? Is that related to the super PACs? Yes, exactly. Okay, got it. Okay, yeah. Where where basically it took away how much um, how much you know people any limits on uh, making campaign finance or donations, right? And so you know what you end up having is a government which is by and large uh, funded and controlled by and in conversation with uh, corporations, uh, and and it's it's. A, a true overlap. So I do think that, you know, that, that there's some, some correct, you know, I, I've never heard it called corporate socialism. Um, but I do think that there is a truth to that. You know, it's a government which is mostly set up to help corporations and business uh, do well. I call it that because it bugs me when people say, oh, well, you know, you're anti-capitalism. Actually, no, if they were to let the free market ride, it would a lot of things would correct themselves. You know, the government is paying subsidies to these large corporations and giving them huge tax breaks, which yeah. is actually like, like I said, a form of corporate socialism. It's socialism, just not for the little guy like me and you, you know, well, well I agree with that. But I do think, though, if we just had a completely free and unbridled um capitalism that, 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 could would be also, a, that could be bad <laughs> well yeah i think that's absolutely right you know because uh, you know because essentially it's just gonna um, as long as money is power those who have money are going to be the ones who are going to set up the system for us you know and you're going to have less and less regulation you know the government does do some regulations you know there are some uh, environmental regulations there are work Antitrust, regulations yeah. and etc cetera, etc cetera, that do hold back corporations to some extent and that's in part because there's um, a lot of uh, people like you and me who say corporations have too much power and we're the ones who ultimately do vote, right? And, uh, you know, so I do think that that there's that balance that government has to find. And, and, and to me, that's, you know, it goes back to this issue we were talking about before. How can we create um, a political structure and an economic structure and a business structure which balances multiple values, given that the seesaw 
has gone too far to the extrinsic. How are we going to bring the intrinsic back in? How are we going to rein in the corporations more, take away some of those subsidies, and, and create a, a more sustainable and hopefully happier world too? That's the, that's the big question. I agree with you. I, I wasn't um, advocating for a completely free market society. What, I was, sure. what my point was that people who point to what we're advocating as socialism, I'm saying there is a corporate socialism that they tend to ignore. Yes, I completely agree with you. you know, and I think that, um, that it's always interesting. You, know, you can talk to people who will complain about, you know, oh, well, we give all this money for you know, welfare and such like that. But then there. What about the trillions that we give in corporate subsidies for GMO corn and for you know, all this other stuff? So that's, that's what I really was making a point to clarify my cl- point for the listeners. I wasn't advocating for crazy free market, but th- for those who point to what we're pointing t- talking about as you know, socialism, I'm saying, okay, what about the corporate socialism? What about the government subsidies for for oil companies and other right. things like that? And and, and sorry, I think that the, well, that's okay. I mean, I think that the issue here, and you know, you you pointed to this earlier in our conversation. You know, when you when people critique me or you and say, "Oh, you're you're a communist or you're a socialist," uh, no, I'm not either of those. I but I'm and and that's the problem is that we don't really have the well articulated terminology and the well articulated vision of what the alternative to hypercapitalism is, right? We don't have that um, where we can say, no, I'm not a socialist, no, I'm not a communist. What I am is a bullist, okay? You know, whatever bull is. And I think <laughs> I, I, I think what we need to do, you know, like I have my long way of saying it, you know. Okay, that Tim, you get to create a word and we're going to try to get it into the Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Well, I, I'm not too good at that. Uh, right I'm a casserist. I'm a casserist. Uh, there, okay, there we go. I, I can live with that, right? You know, if, if casserism means creating, if casserism means creating a an economy which tries to balance the extrinsic values with the intrinsic values, and that infuses the intrinsic values into our lifestyles and into um, our political and economic structures, then I'm, I'm happy to call that casserism. That's awesome. But there, are, <laughs> but there are many before me who've basically said the same thing, so I don't know that I should take credit for I know, it. but if you, if you get the, coin, the word ter- coined after you, Tim, come on, this is your legacy. Um, now, let's talk about what you just said that's very important. You said we've got to find another way to measure an economy or do something. There's other countries who are doing this. They yes. are actually doing this. Let's talk about that. Sure. Well, you know, a country like Bhutan is uh, one of the primary examples that most people put forth. You know, they have uh, gross national happiness is what they're aiming for instead of maximizing gross national product. You know, and when you take a look at the gross national happiness indicators that they use, um, you know, it covers a wide variety of things from health to education to access to nature to um you know, cultural, you know, opportunity to engage in cultural activities. It also includes the economy, but it's a multifaceted measure. And in fact, the Bhutanese, um, when they make decisions about, uh, when they make policy decisions, they'll sort of project how a particular policy might or might not affect each of these different aspects of gross national happiness. And then they make their decision on that basis rather than just, you know, will it be good for the economy? But, you know, 
So in addition to countries like Bhutan who are using these alternative indicators, there are actually cities in the United States that are doing this too. So not too far from you in Los Angeles, uh, the city of Santa Monica has uh, gotten a grant that I helped consult on actually where they are developing and have developed already actually really interesting and good measures of the well-being of citizens of Santa Monica. And they're using those measures as a way to make decisions in City Hall, okay, and in city planning awesome. about how it is that they're going to um, try to make policy changes in, in, in the city. Um, up in the Pacific Northwest, in Seattle and uh, Oregon, there also has been a lot of movement in this direction. There's work in um, Jacksonville, Florida. There's been work in some cities in the UK as well. So I really think to me, you know, at the, at the at the federal level, things are so dysfunctional at the moment <laughs> um, that 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 if you if we work at a more grassroots level, at a city level, we can actually make some changes. Right? I think it's true, and I think if you look actually at what's happened in the last several years, both with um, kind of decriminalizing and legalizing marijuana, and with gay marriage, what's interesting in both of those cases is that. The success that's occurred really kind of caught fire because of things that were happening at a more local level, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and you know, so this state does this and this state does that. And then pretty soon other states start to do it. And then the federal government catches up, okay? <laughs> you know, and I, I, I really think that that's a very good model for these alternative indicators as well, you know, to, to try to do what we can in our cities and in our counties or in our states or regions. And um, that is important and can really have some, some effects. I think in America, we too often look to the federal government and we think it's the be-all and the end-all when there's really enormous amounts of, of very powerful work that can be done at the city and regional level. There is, and not only that, but, you know, there's more... Um that can be done. A lot of people don't vote in local elections. They vote more in the national elections. Yeah. And, you know, it's shown that your vote actually not only counts more when you vote locally because less people vote. So, you know, instead of voting for one person, you really get, I mean, I think the last election in Los Angeles, the voter turnout was the lowest it's been in history. And I went out and vote, I think less than 20% of the people who registered to vote voted. Yeah. So my vote counted like, you know, 10 people. <laughs> Well, I think the other thing about working at a local level is that you can actually go to the meetings, right? You can yeah. go to you, 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 the chances that you're going to go, you know, sit in on a Senate hearing are probably pretty slim. But, you know, you can go to a city hall meeting, you can go to your county board meeting, you can go and probably even have coffee with your alderman or your older woman, right? You know, and and by doing that, you really can have that sort of impact. And I, I, I do think that impact is good in and of itself, but it also holds the promise. And it goes back to the casserism that we were talking about before. <laughs> oh, you love it, it now. You're going to well, Sure, sure. <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? Um, but it goes back to that issue that it gives people the chance to experiment with these alternative models, okay? It gives people a chance to um, see, oh, well, that worked pretty well. That didn't work as well. You know, this seems to catch a lot of, of um, flack. This seems to excite a lot of people. You know, so if we can play with these models at a local level, um, we can learn more and more so that as we begin to scale up, 
to regional and state and hopefully one day federal levels, then uh, we'll have made our, our mistakes earlier, hopefully, <laughs> and uh, be, be have better models for, for later on. Well, I want to talk about something that's actually linked to consumerism with local politics that you just mentioned that's really important, which is that when you're engaged in your community, when you're engaged in local politics, when you're engaged in um, reaching out and making a difference and, and you're minded in that way, you actually become empowered, whereas advertising and marketing wants you disempowered. They sure. want you zombied out on the TV, buying, working, you know, working as much as you can to get these unattainable, like you said, carrot on a stick so that you are not socially engaged and you're kind of like this zombie who just goes, like you said, it feeds an insecurity, right? Yet right. if you're an empowered member of your community, if your image doesn't depend or your self-worth doesn't depend on having, you know, a Louis Vuitton purse or, or a BMW, you actually, you're kind of like a superhero a little bit because you're like really empowered. Yeah. Well, you know, I think this this gets at uh, another literature that's uh, in academia, the consumer versus citizen literature, right? And if we go back to what I was telling you about before with the seesaw, remember that the extrinsic values are those consumeristic values, but that intrinsic transcendent value is the value for community, is for trying to make the world a better place, for getting involved in something bigger than you. And your city is bigger than you, right? Okay. So, you know, th there's, there's that... Um, distinction there too. Another really interesting study uh, was done. There was a guy who did, uh, have you ever heard of, do you know Google Ngram? I don't. It's so it's this search thing you can do using Google, speaking of a big corporation. You can use their one of their search engines. And he searched over 5 million books that had been published in English over the last couple hundred years. And he searched for the word consumer and he searched for the word citizen. And from like 1700 up until about 1950, the frequency of the word citizen was substantially higher than the frequency of the word consumer in books. But around 1950, citizens started to go down and consumers started to go up until in the late 1970s or so, citizens surpassed, I'm sorry, consumers surpassed citizen in terms of how frequently it's being used, okay? And that has remained the same today. So, so the issue is just what you were talking about here. It's a shift from how we talk about people. We don't talk about people as, oh, well, citizens need to do this. We instead say consumers need to do this. Well, as soon as we start to call people consumers, it gets into all of those kind of zombie-ish uh, qualities that you were just mentioning. But when we talk talk about people as citizens, we talk about them as people who have a voice, we talk about them as people who get engaged, we get to talk about them as people who speak back to power, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a consumer, how do you speak back to power? Well, you stop, you know, buying Pepsi and instead you buy Coca-Cola or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you, you buy cot, right? Or you, you know, you let your dollar vote for you. Again, that's worthwhile. It's important. But, you, if you start to think that the only way you can have an impact on the world is through um, your purchasing decisions, you've completely bought into the capitalist mindset. Okay, you know the the place of a citizen is very unclear in capitalism, and that's because capitalism doesn't incorporate those community values into its philosophy, and that's why we need to build up um, that community aspect of things. And 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 again. 
we know from the research that when people get politically engaged, they're happier. I did a study with a guy named Malta Klar uh, that was published a while back where we compared people who were politically active with those who were less, and we found that um, the politically active people, so long as they weren't um, violently politically active, so the nonviolent politically active people were happier than less politically active people. Um, we actually even did one experiment where we had people just engage in a very brief political um, activism action versus a control action, and that temporarily boosted their happiness. So, you know, not only can you make something good happen in your uh, community by getting active, you might actually be a little happier, too. It is. And not only that, but, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, they can't do anything. They, they have no power. And yeah. that is something, you know, obviously these corporations are feeding our system and feeding our bigger politicians. And so they don't want you to be, you know, active in your community and your pol politi policies because you could possibly shift, you know, the status quo. Another thing is I think a lot of people, you know, we're talking about um, – marketing and consumerism is kind of feeding on people's insecurities and wanting you to be a zombie and 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 um, all this stuff and it it kind of sounds like a conspiracy theory but this is like basic marketing 101 right That's this right. isn't That's right. this is basic psychology this is not some weird conspiracy theory the government's out to get you blah 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 this is like you can like base, basic information that's out there, correct? Uh, yes, again, it's just the logic of the system, okay? It's not a conspiracy theory. And, and I get, you know, I, I recognize sometimes when I'm talking about how it all works, it does sound like it's a conspiracy theory because it's so complicated and it makes so much of its own internal sense. And it does, you know, it's just the way that that system works. And it's very clear, um, you know, in the marketing literature and in the advertising literature that appealing to fear and appealing to insecurities can have these kind of momentary effects when they're combined with saying, and here's how to solve your insecurity, you know, go buy this. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not some something people are just spinning in their heads. It's what's actually happening out there in the world. And has been for a while. So I want to talk about the solution. What is the solution to this, you know, problem? Because it can sound overwhelming. It can sound sure. a little bit daunting to people who are like, okay, well, I'm being brainwashed. What can I do? I, you know, what are some steps that people can take to fix and solve um, this problem and work towards having a different, you know, world where it's not a lose-lose, but it's actually a win-win. Sure. Well, you know, from the way that I think, here's my basic understanding of how one approaches it. First, in your own personal life, you would do well to do three things. First, try to limit your exposure to those extrinsic materialistic messages. Cut back on how much you watch TV, cancel your Facebook page and all the ads that are on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that you're less likely to continually be bombarded with those extrinsic messages. And when you still are exposed to those extrinsic messages, label them as such. Say, they're, this is what I used to teach my kids when they were little. They're advertising to me. They're trying to make me feel insecure. They're trying to get my money. Okay. Okay. Like a game, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what we used to do when they were when they were little. But you can do it, you know, at any age, right? Because it's still true. Right? <laughs> they, they are trying to make you feel insecure. They are trying to get your money. And so, um, you know, 
label what exists as extrinsic as extrinsic and try to and and that's going to defuse its power a second thing i would say is that when you're starting to feel insecure recognize that you feel insecure and instead of engaging in the kind of consumeristic behaviors that you maybe usually would ask yourself what's something i can do instead that will help calm me down here for a little while, but isn't going to um, contribute to a society that I don't believe in. Okay, take a walk, call a friend, knit, play the piano, whatever. You know, there's plenty of things one can do. Third, still in your individual life, ask yourself how can I organize my life around my intrinsic values? I really think this is the crux of the matter. You know, ask yourself, how much of my life really is focused around extrinsic values versus intrinsic values? Why don't I spend as much time living my life around my intrinsic values um, as I'd like to? And what would that actually entail? You know, for me, it's playing the piano and being with my family and doing the kinds of activism work that I do. For you, it might be something else. For somebody else, it's going to be yet another thing. The important part is to ask yourself that question and then start to make some concrete changes in your life. You know, and don't try to do it all at once. You know, my philosophy is do two things this year, cement them into your life, and then do two more things the next year and two more the next year. And in five or ten years, you'll take a lot of steps to changing your life. It is. So that, and a, a lot of people complain about not having enough money and this and that. And once you shift your life, you'll you'll start to realize that you actually make a lot of money. Whatever your income pr- point is, you start to realize, wow, I actually make a lot of money. That's right. Yeah. And if you stop spending it on things you don't really need, then you can begin to understand that better. A really great book for this, by the way, is called Your Money or Your Life. Um, where you actually track every cent you spend and then you rate how well it fits your values, how well it actually brought mm-hmm. you happiness, um, your money or your life. It's a great book for this. Um, I think the, the last thing I would say, though, you know, we just, what do we do in our individual lives? But, you know, what do we do in our broader societal lives? You know, I think that we've, we've just talked a bunch about being involved in your community, you know, and again, if you try to do everything, it's going to drive you nuts. Okay. You know, pick one action that's broader than yourself, one bigger thing that you care about. Maybe it's getting a green space in your neighborhood. Maybe it's about an alternative indicator in your city. Maybe it's about, you know, starting a co-op, whatever. It doesn't doesn't really matter exactly what the thing is so long as it's moving towards shifting society in a way which begins to better enact those intrinsic values and work on that thing and, and do it and join with others who are already doing it in your community. And that's the kind of thing that's going to create the revolution we're talking about. Okay. If, if more and more people do those kinds of things and develop these alternative ways of living their lives and these alternative ways of organizing society, that's, what's going to bring about the revolution from hyper capitalism to whatever new thing it to is. That we're trying to, to, <laughs> to, to whatever new thing it is we're trying to bring about. Well, Tim, thank you so much for all of your important information. Hopefully, you know, the listeners will go out and make a difference in their community and in their lives thanks to what you shared with us. How can people find you online? Are you on Twitter or are you 
No, um, I'm not. I do don't have a do website? Twitter. I do have a website. So if you uh, go onto any search engine and you type in my name, Tim K A S S E R Casser, um, I will come up pretty quickly, and you'll be able to uh, go to my my home website, and there you'll be able to find information about um, organizations that I really. Um, uh, encourage people to look into uh, books that I've I've written and other kinds of things guys check out Tim's website and check out his books and um, oh, also if you go on to YouTube uh, and you type in my name you'll find a five-minute animated video that I made with Center for a New American Dream that's kind of a fun way that quickly summarizes a lot of this info okay every guy one um, go on YouTube and check out Tim's video Um, Tim, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. You bet. I've enjoyed it, Rosie. Thank you. Okay, guys. uh, Check out our sponsor, HugMeTees.com. Spread love. Give a hug. HugMeTees.com. If you go check them out and you get a Hug Me Tea, you will get hugs. I have worn mine out and I get many, many, many hugs. So it's an awesome website, HugMeTees.com. And as always, we are on Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Guys, follow me on Twitter at FunnyRosie. And remember, if you want me to come and check out uh, my act in your local area, then tweet at me at Funny Rosie and at your local comedy club, and that will help bring me to your town. And as always, go on iTunes, iTunes.com, look up Out of the Box Podcast and click on subscribe and leave a positive comment as well. Positive comments are the number one way to help spread the word about the podcast. If you've already done that, you can check out Out of the Box Podcast.com and click on the donate button. We're now accepting Litecoins and Bitcoins and all alternative currency. Your donations help keep the podcast going. And if you have any questions or any future guests that you'd love to see on the podcast, you can send me an email at info at outoftheboxpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. This has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. 